This show is supported by State Farm. You have insurance for your home, your health, and your car. Why don't you have insurance for your small business? So many small business owners think they don't need or don't even know about small business insurance. Protecting a source of revenue is one thing, but so is protecting all of your hard work and your team members. State Farm agents are all small business owners too, so they know how to help small business owners choose personalized policies that fit their budgets. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. A science story, huh? And I just thought, well, I figured it out. It was that golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true, personal stories about science. I'm your host, Aaron Barker. And this week we're bringing you a very special episode in celebration of the Story Collider's Proton Prom. What is a Proton Prom, you ask? Great question. The Proton Prom is our annual fundraiser, which was held for the first time last year. This year's Proton Prom on June 1st at the Bell House in Brooklyn will be the first time we hold it in person, which is very exciting. Essentially, the Proton Prom is Story Collider's version of a gala event, which means that while there won't be a sit-down dinner, we will be providing some fancy snacks, some drinks, and some ice cream sandwiches. And while you don't necessarily have to dress up, you absolutely can, and attendees are encouraged to dress as though you are attending Science Prom. For instance, you can find me wearing my Adam tie and a tux jacket. And most importantly, because this is, after all, all about storytelling, we'll be putting together an incredible show with a blockbuster lineup that includes comedian Aparna Nanchurla, famed mathematician Ken Ono, Nat Geo and Star Talk's Natalia Reagan, and award-winning journalist Nicholas St. Fleur, as well as some special appearances from the Story Collider team. Comedian and Story Collider board member Gastor Almonte will be our host for the evening. You won't want to miss it. If you'll be in the New York area on June 1st, please join us at the Bell House. We would love to see you to celebrate the Story Collider's work and help to raise money for our next year of science stories. If you're not in the New York area, virtual tickets will go on sale May 15th, and we'd love to have you join us online as well. Get tickets and find out more, including about our COVID protocols, at storycollider.org slash protonprom2022. This event is very generously supported by the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative and Blueprint Medicines at the Gold Level and by the Burroughs Welcome Fund at the Bronze Level. We so appreciate the support of our sponsors. To get everybody psyched for the big day, this week on the podcast we're sharing stories from two of our Proton Prom storytellers that they've shared with us in the past. Our first story is from comedian Aparna Nanchurla. It was recorded in May 2016 at a show we produced in partnership with Studio 360 with Kurt Anderson. Hello. Thank you. Uh, So, how is everyone? Good? Good. Great. Uh, I've never told this story before, so I'm just going to... Here it goes. Uh, I'm glad I did it. Partly because it was worth it, but mostly because I never have to do it again. Uh, Thus spoke Mark Twain, and his words can apply to a lot of things in life. He could be talking about bungee jumping, uh, paper mache, 
going off of heroin, like many things fall under that umbrella. In my case, it applies to high school, and I don't think I'm alone in that. Yeah. A lot of people have a tough time in high school, and I feel like the few people who cruise through, like they're looked at askance later in life as if to say, oh, so that's too bad, you peaked so young. Uh, yeah, I feel like Malcolm Gladwell wrote a whole book about it. So, so anyway, just to give you a little background, I grew up in Northern Virginia, and uh, at the end of eighth grade, basically I had gone to private school for the past four years, and it was like a fancy private school, uniforms, Christmas play, the works, and I was all set to go to high school, same school, I uh, had my you know, carefully cultivated social circle. I was ready for a lax dress code. I was ready to go. But there's one little catch. In my county, there was this very fancy public magnet school that specialized in science and technology. And uh, you had to take a test to get in. And I had no interest in taking the test. But my parents are both first generation immigrants from India and doctors to boot. And it's not a stereotype if I say it. Uh, so don't even think it, but they were like, they were like, just take the test, you know, like you don't have to go, just take it to prove you got the stuff. And, uh, and then if you get in, then you can decide if you actually want to go. So basically they were like, you can burn that bridge when you come to it, but just take the test. Uh, so I took it because, you know, nothing motivates a teenager more than, uh, than the, to commit to something after boldly pronouncing something like, fine, I'll do it. So I was like, fine, I'll take this test. You want me to take this test? I'll take it. Uh, and the weird thing is I got into the school, like with no, like I didn't want to get in, but, you know, I was a good student. I will admit that, but not for the right reasons. Like I wasn't passionate about school, but it was more just like something to do. So that's why I was a good student. <laughs> I don't know what that says about me, but I do remember on the test, like the essay question was just, do you think computers will ever become obsolete? And I remember it was the first time I answered an essay question by creating like the shakiest thesis of all time and just like meandering around an answer and articulating nothing of actual substance, which I feel like is a very valuable skill as an adult. Like <laughs> we're, we're huge fans of that. Uh, this was really a breakthrough in that way. Um, but also, this was the 90s, so was, you know, the iPhone was just a twinkle in Steve Jobs' eyes. None of us knew. Uh, and when I got in, my parents, of course, changed the game again. They were like, well, you got in, you know? Just go for a year and then see how you feel. I did that little parent twist. Uh, so like many, you know, second immigration immigrant children before and after me, I was just like gently but firmly pushed towards my bright STEM future. Uh, <laughs> And uh, just a note about the school, like there was a very, uh, you know, hard curriculum, like a lot of the classes were already like set for you all your four years, especially in math, science and technology. And while you could test out into like a higher level, for most kids, it was uh, biology as a freshman, chemistry as a sophomore, physics as a junior, and then the coveted geoscience as a senior. Uh, paired with like an intensive lab that you also had to pick. And I only bring this up just to give you an idea of like how academically rigorous this school was. Like it was basically like there were a lot of eggheads at my school. And I don't mean that in a pejorative sense. Like, I mean, there were like some really smart kids. Like some of them didn't have the social skills to like remember to wear two shoes every day. 
but they had like the ability to create a robot that would do it for them. Like they, they, they were very advanced. Uh, and, and the point is, like a lot of kids, they knew what they were doing there. They belonged there for a reason. I didn't really feel like I knew how I fit in. And so one of the first big assignments as a freshman uh, for biology class was that you had to enter a project in the science fair as a group. Like the science fair was uh, optional your, the rest of your high school career, but as a freshman it was mandatory. And uh, they put together groups like most school projects by random chance. And my group was a very uh, hodgepodge mishmash. Like I would say there was one girl who was very popular in my group, let's call her Kelly. Uh, and then there was a very responsible achiever girl, let's call her Michelle. Uh, oh wait, oh wait, I guess that makes me Beyonce. That's weird. Um, uh, but yeah, that's weird, but I feel like it fits, you know, I, I, I think that actually it works out well. Um, cause even then I did consider myself an outlier of sorts, you know, like a, like a rogue star that people weren't ready for yet. Uh, so the topic we chose, uh, which you've heard about a little tonight already, was environmental science. And this was not a time yet in which like climate change was like hashtag trending. Like this was an earlier time in environmental science. Like you know, acid rain had been a hot button issue for a while. People tried to save whales and the rainforest and whales again. Like it, it, you know, peace frogs were on shirts, but it, it wasn't like. It wasn't as motivated as it is now, but we were like, you know, the earth matters. So we picked basically for our project, um, me and uh, Michelle picked the project, and then Kelly worked on being popular, which is a full-time job. Uh, and what we did for the project was we specifically looked at how aluminum nitrate, which is a chemical compound that's found in, like, fertilizer and a lot of, uh, you know, run chemical runoff, like, how it affects uh, populations of organisms in water. And the organisms we chose to go with were paramecia for our experiment. Uh, if you're not familiar with paramecia, they're a one-celled organism, uh, similar to amoeba in that they're completely dispensable and considered free range for any type of scientific experimentation. <laughs> Uh, so our project was pretty straightforward. Basically, we had these solutions of paramecium in water, and then every day we would add a little bit more aluminum nitrate and see how the populations were affected. And uh, and you're like, oh, how did you get paramecia? That's a great question. Uh, like most one-celled organisms, we got them on a biology from a biology catalog uh, order, or you could also get them on Tinder, I guess now. Um, <laughs> another popular place, but. The one little sort of hiccup in, in the research was that there was like a holiday break in the middle of like uh, our experiment. So basically one of us had to take the data home and, and do the project from home. And we were like, Kelly, you haven't really carried your weight until now. So maybe you take it to your house. Uh, and you know, Kelly's game, she, she, in her favor, she did agree to do it. But then the paramecia never actually made it to Kelly's house because uh, she left them outside during tennis practice, and I'm sad to say they all perished in the cruel sun. Uh, and I would imagine the last conversation among them was something like, Phil, I thought the aluminum nitrate levels were bad, but this heat is oppressive. <laughs> and then the other one's like, yeah, Pablo, and to add insult to injury, I hate tennis. Um, I tried to add some diversity in my paramecia casting. 
So, it, you know, it, we reached a real impasse with our project. Uh, our girl group had to have an emergency meeting, and there was not enough time at this point to start our project over again. The science fair was coming up too soon, and, you know, we couldn't forfeit this early in our high school careers that with a gaffe this big. Uh, so, you know, like with the intensity of like a gathering of witches under the full moon, we were like, we can't tell anyone about this. So we were like, we're just going to use our earlier data and then extrapolate the rest, you know? Because that's a thing you can do. Uh, and, you know, it's like, I know it was wrong. Like, we all knew it was empirically wrong. But it's like, what choice did we have? Like, if anything, we were kind of operating on the plus side of plus or minus scientific error. But you need that half. Uh, and... For some reason, we completely excused Kelly from any accountability. We were just like, yeah, it's very hard to maintain your position as a cheerleader. She was a cheerleader. Uh, you, you couldn't have known. Uh, so, so even though we didn't want to work together before, now we were bonded together in this like sick, low-stakes version of I Know What You Did Last Summer, uh, <laughs> starring Paramecia. And... Uh, you know, we swore secrecy among the three of us, and I hope the statute of lip, you know limitations is up on that because here I am uh, talking about it pretty openly. But it's like, isn't that the last step of the scientific method anyway? It's like finish your experiment by all means necessary. I feel like that is a step that you don't talk about. Uh, and the truly twisted part to me was that we took our uh, our paramecia back to the lab, and then I kept adding aluminum nitrate every day, like a true psychopath, uh, mad scientist, like everything's going great. Uh, I was like, here I am, where's my Nobel? But so, so then fate had a really weird twist in store, which was that, uh, so then we took our, our project to the uh, school science fair and, you know, there were prizes in every category. And I don't know how this happened. Some way, somehow, we created a great cover story, I guess, because we got third place in our, in our, <laughs> I know, I know, that's really a testament to us, I think. Um, that's really what that is. And now it was like the stakes were even higher. Like, we had to go to another level of science fair. And I was like, well, now there's really no way we can come clean. Because it would, it would uh, you know, this, a, type, a scandal this big <laughs> could unravel the scientific community as we know it. Uh, the only honorable thing to do is to go to the regionals, lie through our teeth, uh, boldly misrepresent ourselves confidently. That's the American way. Uh, and of course, that's what we did. We went there. We told our story again. No one was impressed at regionals. We were like, thank God we can just slink out of this and never talk about it again. I mean, we had like the blood of two orders of paramecia on our hands. Like, don't think we weren't up at night being like, I hope they're happy wherever they are. Uh, and so I guess, uh, you know, I, I've thought about this story often because it's not something I'm proud of. But I was trying to think, you know, what lessons can can you call here? And I think one of them is definitely like at the end of the day, pick a career where you can spin your lack of integrity into like a cheeky life lesson. That's a fun one. Um, uh, yeah. You know, it's like what we did was very wrong, but I almost feel like because it was a group effort, it, it diluted our individual wrongness, uh, which, 
which interestingly enough is a principle in psychology, which I uh, later majored in and did a thesis in and did not kill any experimental or control groups because um, my subjects were humans, so that would be <laughs> more serious. But, you know, you can cheat alone, but if you do it with other people, there's kind of a circle of trust where you're just like, we're in this together. And, you know, if you have perfectionistic tendencies, it's kind of like you feel like a fraud all the time anyway. So to actually be one felt in some ways liberating. <laughs> I was like, this is what I've been talking about. Uh, and in the end, I feel like science, despite its emphasis on like hard data and irrefutable proofs, is like is as subject to the fickleness of human nature as anything else. But I feel like if you asked our paramecia, they'd just be like, "Go to hell." Uh, thank you. Is Aparna Nancherla. Aparna is a comedian and general silly billy. You can watch her as Grace, the belabored HR rep on the Comedy Central show Corporate, which is one of my favorite shows of all time, or hear her as the voice of Hollyhock on BoJack Horseman, also a great show, as well as appearances on Late Night with Stephen Colbert on CBS and Two Dope Queens on HBO. Other acting credits include A Simple Favor, Crashing, High Maintenance, Master of None, and Inside Amy Schumer. Aparna was also named one of the 50 funniest people right now by Rolling Stone. In 2016, she released her debut album, Just Putting It Out There, on Tig Notaro's label, Benson Ball Records, and recorded a half-hour special for Comedy Central. I can't wait to hear the story that Aparna comes up with for this year's Proton Prom. Remember, get your tickets at storyclutter.org slash protonprom2022. And check out storyclutter.org slash shows to get information about our other upcoming shows in places like New York, D.C., St. Louis, L.A., Chicago, and Toronto. We're also continuing to offer online storytelling workshops for individuals as well as private groups. You can find out more about those at storyclutter.org slash education. And finally, if you're a fan of this podcast, if you, like all of us at The Story Collider, believe in the power these stories have to reveal the humanity behind science, to change our understanding of how science happens and who it belongs to, please consider donating to The Story Collider at storyclider.org slash donate. You can also sign up to support us on a monthly basis at patreon.com slash thestorycollider. Our Patreon supporters can receive an ad-free version of this podcast, as well as occasional bonus episodes and other gifts. In fact, this month, if you become a Patreon supporter, you can get a discounted ticket to the Proton Prom. We're so grateful to everyone who helps make our work possible. This show is supported by State Farm. Insurance is a part of any solid financial plan. Making sure you have the important things in life covered is one of the best ways to give yourself a little breathing room when things go awry. It's important to protect not only your business, but yourself as a business owner and all current and future team members. State Farm agents know what it takes to run and protect a small business because State Farm agents are all small business owners and they live and work in your community. So they're deeply attuned to what's happening with other small businesses in your market. If you have a small business and are interested in making sure you're protected, reach out to your local State Farm agent to learn more about what you need. They'll help you find the right policy at the right price for your business. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. 
Our second story today is from mathematician Ken Ono. It was recorded at a show we produced in partnership with Springer Nature in January 2018, held in conjunction with the American Mathematical Society's annual meeting. I'm up here by accident. <laughs> so my father, some of you may know, was a mathematician. He, for many years, was a professor at Johns Hopkins. And I don't know about many of you, but when I was a teenager, the last thing I wanted to do was be anything like my dad. And a la definitely the last thing I wanted to do was anything that my parents told me that I should do. And I'm not trying to be funny, I love my parents, but um, you know, when you're 16, that's not unusual. So in 1984, that's when I was 16, so you'll know about, I'm about to turn 50. Hawaii 5-0, right? <laughs> When I was 16, in 1984, a letter came to the house addressed to my dad, written by a widow, a widow of an Indian mathematician by the name of Ramanujan. We made a film about him. And it was the most extraordinary letter. I'd never heard of Ramanujan before. And this letter to my dad thanked him for being one of 80 mathematicians that helped give um, Ramanujan's widow, uh, a bust. You see, Ramanujan turned out, as I learned, was a major mathematical figure. And when he died in 1920 as a, as a hero in India, the government had promised to erect a statue in his honor. But by the 1980s, well over 60 years later, the government had not come through with it. And the mathematicians of the world gave Mrs. Ramanujan the statue. And I thought it was a lovely story. But I have to admit, when I was 16, what I heard was there was a two-time college dropout who ended up inspiring the mathematicians of the world. And when you're 16 and your parents are like super Asian telling you to get 800 on the SAT math test or getting straight A's, the only thing you hear is they look up to a two-time college dropout. And I, I thought that was so awesome. And I know that sounds funny, but it was really important for me because, you know, and certainly for all of you who are professors, you see the kids in class that are mindlessly pursuing good grades, forgetting that they're in college, forgetting about the content part. And for whatever reason, there have been a lot of accidents in my life, and I've ended up following Ramanujan first as a, a source of inspiration, but certainly for the last 20 or so years, a source of mathematics. It's actually really crazy. He was kind of like an incomplete prophet. He left behind three notebooks. I don't know why you all don't read these notebooks because I can't tell you how many papers I've written because I've gone through these notebooks and found really deep suggestions. But that's not my story. My story is actually very difficult to, to tell because um, I was a terrible student. I was, I was a dick. <laughs> I was one of those kids in college that didn't want to go to class. I was one of those students that rather perversely got a lot of pleasure out of getting by in math class by not going to class. And I'm not proud of that. And I have to say, 
that I had great mentors along the way. You know the names, Paul Sally, my advisor Basil Gordon and others, later Andrew Granville, who rescued me at times when I almost quit. Jeff Legarius, who is here, will remember me as a, a PhD student about to quit. I can't believe that, 20 years ago, I was about to take a job at a bank. Now, if you work for a bank, that's, I mean, my point is, my point is, <laughs> My point is, is that there are a lot of accidents, there are a lot of mentors along the way, and there can be a lot of luck in one's career. So my story is about how I accidentally ended up having a career in mathematics that somehow ends up with me standing, bumbling in front of all of you about, well, whatever it is I'm gonna say. So what I wanna, the story I wanna tell you about is my big breakthrough. How is it that I became discovered and ended up having a good career? And it's totally by accident. So it was 1997, about 20 years ago. I got an email from Bruce Berndt, who is, uh, many of you probably know Bruce. He's a professor at the University of Illinois. He's devoted his career to studying Ramanujan. And I am so grateful that he said that he had an unpublished manuscript that Ramanujan had left behind and he wanted some help editing this manuscript. I thought it actually sucked, right? So what, what, I, you know, what experience do I have editing a manuscript? But it was like the most incredible experience. So in 1997, I was a beginning tenure track assistant professor at Penn State. This is Happy Valley. I was so grateful to get that job, quite frankly, I. I didn't believe I deserved the job. I was certainly an imposter, a fraud. And on any event, let me just tell you a little about my circumstances. I had an office on the fourth floor. The building is called McAllister Building. It was built in 1904. It was originally intended to be the women's dormitory. But by 1997, it was in decrepit state, but somehow it was good enough to be a, the math department. <laughs> I mean, how awful was it it was this awful. The internet went out probably every month. And I can exactly tell you why. Because the cables which were in the attic, the squirrels, we had squirrels living in the attic. And so, so certainly the squirrels enjoyed the, the taste of internet cables or at least the, the mouthfeel of them. And so the internet went out all the time. My office was in the corner. The ceiling was so low that there were places where, well, for half of the office, you really couldn't even stand up, and I'm not that tall. I had an air conditioner. It didn't work. And my window, it, it had a lock. No, I, that's not right. It once had a lock, presumably broken off decades ago, but it didn't, it didn't even really matter because this building was in such decrepit state that there must have been like five or six layers of paint that made it impossible to open the window. Well, anyway, in any event, getting back to um, this, this manuscript that Bruce Burnt asked me to help him out with, uh, it was a chore. And uh, so we started going through the notebooks. And there were some things in the notes that were just wrong. But it turned out that they weren't wrong. It was that I wasn't smart enough to figure, smart enough to figure out how right they were. So you, you see, Ramanujan in his notebooks sometimes used the equal sign in a way that's so different from 
what we would agree as, or if, if A equals B, that's supposed to mean A and B are the same thing. But to Ramanujan, it didn't mean anything like that. So over the course of several months, we went through the notes and, um, you know, I had this freakish yellow couch in my office. When you're a poor graduate, kind of poor beginning um, tenure track assistant professor, you can't actually furnish your office. So I was so excited when I went to uh, Penn State Salvage. I bought a, a this, this, this stained orange couch for 20 bucks. And it was like my most prized possession. By the way, if you, if you need like adding machines from the 1960s, go to Penn State Salvage. You can buy them for $5. <laughs> so anyway, it was on this couch that I did most of my work. And in the course of going through Ramanujan's notes, I finally began to figure out one of these formulas. It was so wrong that, you know, just like Hardy said, it had to be somehow right. It had to be born out of genius. And it, I can't explain this, but it was one of those flashes of insight where I finally saw what Ramanujan had meant in this formula. And it turned out it was related to a 80-year-old problem. And I went to the computer and I started computing. And term by term, it actually worked out despite the fact that it had no right to work out. So I went back to the orange couch and I tried to build a theory out of it. And then it was another thing. I finally figured out it was related to things that I'd actually been thinking about. I, I hate it when someone tells you when they're dead after 60 years that you don't understand your own subject. <laughs> And it was an epiphany. I've never had another epiphany, I think, like that. I sprang up from my yellow couch. I banged my head on the gabled roof of this ceiling of this building. I still have a notch here. I mean, you have no idea. I really have a, it's more than a scar. My skull is indented here. And I couldn't believe the gift that I was given by going through these notes. I ran out into the hall, went to the bathroom. I washed my face with cold water. I was so, I was shaking. Kind of like I'm shaking now because I'm petrified. And I got water all over. It was awful. And then in walked my colleague, Dale Brownowell. He's like, what the hell happened to you? You're all wet, you're bleeding from your head. And I couldn't admit to him that like the most amazing thing in my career had happened to me, so I lied. Something like I hit my head on the coat hook in the bathroom stall. But in any event, what I wanted to say about this story is that I have no right to be here. I'm not really smart. I'm really lucky. And it's one of those things when you're young, when you don't know where, where your career is going to go, that there are those miracles if you kind of believe in yourself. So in any event, to make a long story short, I wrote a paper. It was solicited for publication in the Annals of Mathematics. I ended up winning a prize from the President of the United States for this theorem. I gave a speech about this theorem in the Indian Treaty Room at the White House. And at the end of the day, what's going on in the back of my mind is not even my theorem. I got a gift from God. Ramanujan was someone who, whose ideas came as visions from a goddess. And who am I, gonna, who am I to argue with that? I was a 2.7 GPA student at the University of Chicago. And somehow, and that's what was going on in my mind, what am I doing at the White House? In any event, if that inspires you, I hope it does, because um, I've been following this, this genius, and I can't explain, cannot begin to explain,
how amazing that's been. Thank you. That was Ken Ono. Ken is the Thomas Jefferson Professor of Mathematics at the University of Virginia and the Chair of Mathematics at the American Association for the Advancement of Science. He has published over 200 research articles in number theory and has received many awards for his research, including a Guggenheim Fellowship, a Packard Fellowship, and a Sloan Fellowship. He was awarded a Presidential Early Career Award for Science and Engineering by Bill Clinton in 2000, and he was named the National Science Foundation's Distinguished Teaching Scholar in 2005. He was an associate producer of the 2016 Hollywood film The Man Who Knew Infinity, which starred Jeremy Irons and Dev Patel. Fun fact, both Ken and Aparna have been featured in Super Bowl commercials, which is how you know they are huge stars, the kind you can only see at the Proton Prom. Once again, get your tickets at storyclutter.org slash protonprom2022. The Storyclutter is so grateful to Aparna and Ken for sharing their stories with us and for being willing to share new stories with us at the Proton Prom on June 1st. The Storyclutter is also very grateful for the support of Science Sandbox, Simon's Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. This podcast is produced by me, Erin Barker, Executive Director and Co-Founder of The Story Collider, with help from Managing Producer Misha Gajewski and Senior Podcast Editor Jun Chen. Special thanks goes out to Story Collider's board and the rest of our staff, including Managing Director Anne-Marie Lonsdale, Science Advisory Fellow Edith Gonzalez, Operations Manager Lindsay Cooper, Marketing Manager Nikisha Roberts-Washington, and our brand new Education Director Lily B., without whom none of this would be possible. The stories featured in today's episode were from shows produced by me, Aaron Barker, and Ben Lilly, and by me, Aaron Barker, and Shane Hanlon, respectively. Our theme music is by Ghost. Next week, we'll be back with stories about obsession. Until then, thanks for listening. Thanks to State Farm for supporting this show and helping our listeners protect their businesses and lives. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today.